Glory be to God the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And the disciples went out and proclaimed that people should repent. This is from Mark chapter 6 today, verses 1 to 13, and it's paired with Ezekiel um, uh, 2, 1 to 6, but it's really Ezekiel 2 and 3, and then Psalm 123. And we look at this today, this call to repentance that the disciples proclaimed in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. When Amy and I were living both in England and in Canada, we lived among what would be called as the progressive end or the, the leading end of the liberal church in America or in Britain and in Canada at the time. And we knew clergy and we were involved in ministerial circumstances where people wanted to eliminate sin and confession from the liturgy. Um, to remove the word sin altogether, and to remove crosses, many people felt like. The church ought to be a positive place, an affirming place. And all of this negative language of repentance and sin um, should be done away with. It's really Jesus' love that is necessary in the church. Well, as we come to Mark's gospel in chapter 6, we're in a moment both to think culturally about sin and guilt and about what Scripture says about these things. And if we look and attend closely to Mark's gospel, we find that that instinct, while warm and while affirming, is in fact getting the gospel upside down. Just consider this for a moment, the way um, Mark gives us this figure, Jesus. Mark chapter 1, we get the baptism of Jesus, no birth. It's the fastest moving gospel in terms of a narrative. And Jesus' first words as he came out of the desert and temptation is this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus has brought the kingdom, and to be um, with Jesus, to have access to him in his kingdom, demands repentance. In chapter 2, as Jesus begins, he goes from there, just a few verses later, and he begins to heal, and um, sick people, demoniacs, are brought to Jesus, and Jesus begins to do miracles and works. And the miracles and the works in John, the social projects that Jesus has going on, are not the end goal. They point to Jesus as the one who forgives the repentant sinner. So in Mark chapter 2, it's said that these four men brought their friend, a paralytic, to Jesus, and the crowds pressed in, and so the friends had to lower this paralytic into Jesus' presence. And Jesus, having compassion, looked up and said, How great is your faith! Your sins are forgiven you. Now the Pharisees that are in Jesus' midst, they begin to grumble among themselves. Who is this guy think he is to forgive sins? You see, that's what's at the heart of the Pharisees' resistance. Not that he's a miracle worker, but that he would claim to have the authority to forgive sins. And that's precisely Jesus' answer to them. He knows they're grumbling. And he says, which is it easier to say? Stand up and walk or that your sins are forgiven? But in order that you might know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say, take up your bed and walk. And the man stood and walked. It is for forgiveness that Mark calls. Uh, Jesus calls his people, calls us to himself. Our own context today, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus has come to his own town. And it's the familiarity of this carpenter, they call him. He couldn't possibly be what he claims to be. And so they have no faith. And so Jesus will do no signs. The signs are not meant to arouse faith. They are meant to accompany and affirm it. 
go on one more example. In Mark chapter 8, the Pharisees come to Jesus. They've heard of the great works he's done. And they say, give us a sign. And it says, Jesus sighed deeply within himself. And he would do no sign. And tells them so. I will do no sign. Another gospel says, the only sign you'll have is that of Jonah who descended into the belly of the fish for three days. It is Jesus himself who is the sign. He's the one who comes to bring forgiveness and to bring relationship to us and to welcome us. And so as the Jesus goes out or the disciples go out to preach that people should repent, it is to follow through with the Lord's desire for us to come to him and honor before him and bow and acknowledge our sin that we might be forgiven. I emphasize this today because of the weight, the significance it has in our culture and the offer, the good news it has for our culture, I think. If you go back just over a hundred years, the end of the 19th century, there's a development among um, poets and writers and philosophers. And there's a strong and consistent thought in this enlightenment and romantic period of the Western world that if we can do away with God and religion, Judeo-Christian religion, we can emerge into this perfection of humanity where we'll have no guilt. Um, Friedrich Nietzsche, the Prussian philosopher, said it best at the end of the 19th century. God is dead. He says we killed him by culture, by science. God is dead, and so sin is dead, and so guilt is no more. And there's a strong, overwhelming ambition in this modern developing enlightenment culture that we inherit today that if we can simply dispense with Christianity and Judaism and their antiquated morality, these old laws and morals that are unnecessary and not applicable to our culture, we'll do away with guilt. Now, what's so very important about that day is at this same time, another significant figure is coming onto the scene and beginning to do work in, psycho in psychology, in Sigmund Freud. And you don't need to know a lot about Freud, but everybody should know this little bit. That is, Freud encounters this optimism, this spirit of positivism in culture. He finds that as people and secular world advances, guilt is going nowhere. The core of, um, of Freud's work is that we are plagued. It is woven into our humanity to be people of anxiety and guilt. And so he devises this now outdated idea of um, the ego and the id and the superego as a way to deal with the prevailing nature of guilt, even in a culture that does not have God and Christian morality. In fact, Freud's worry is that the, the more civilized we become, the stronger and the heavier guilt becomes within us. And we inherit that today. And so I pause here for us to think on this moment of guilt in our culture and how the Christian church might bring good news and might bring compassion to a world that struggles with guilt. Those who write on this subject observe that our culture deals with this latent guilt in two ways. The first and maybe the more predominant way is through therapy. This was the psychoanalytical or therapeutic age that Freud was a part of. And I have no interest in, in disputing it or denying it. People need to attend to the fragility of our souls, of our spirits. And there's this significant, really, explosion of therapeutic care for people in the following century after Freud's and during Freud's work. 
for us to attend to this ongoing persistent sense of guilt and shame that remains in us somehow, that's marked in our created identity. And so this um, New York Times writer I read a few uh, months ago said, it used to be not long ago a stigma to have a therapist. Today, it is a stigma not to. And so there should be evidence among us in our culture, this massive rise of therapy, that there is something about our souls that needs attending to. The second major thing that our culture does to deal with this sense of guilt that remains with us is the um, identity and identification of victims and oppressor, what could be called the victim culture. So we train, especially young college students and young students in our schools, to identify the victim and then identify the suppressor, the oppressor, and to, if necessary, cancel the oppressor. And again, here I see that there's something here significant and to be affirmed. You know, there's um, centuries, decades that we've overlooked popular common sins of sexuality, of um, oppression, of race, of theft in our world. And it's easy to overlook and to simply accept as normal. And this rise of victimhood has forced everyone for the moment to recognize the victim. But the nature of this is that we go about looking for victims of what some have called um, suffering theft. I need to find somebody who suffers and identify with them to relieve the guilt that's within me. It's a way of sublimating or dealing with um, uh, taking my guilt and, and transposing it somewhere to manage it temporarily. So my ability to find a victim or to be a victim is a way of finding that sense, that draw for the need of purity. In a world full of brokenness, of oppression, of greed, I need to find some sense of innocence, and this is one way the culture does it. Now, true as these things might be, it may be that we're deeply psychologically in need of therapy sometimes, and that there is a, um, a constant need to know the victim. It's no way to deal with guilt. I think of just the simple way of, that we do with children today, before a child is 10 years old in our country, they will understand the grievous and sometimes reversible effects of climate change, um, the long-standing effects and the history of racism, the theft of the land of indigenous cultures, the um, effects of colonial empires around the globe, the um, discrimination against um, different kinds of races and sexual orientations. And a child at eight or nine years old is powerless to do anything about those things. And yet we shovel, we truckload that guilt upon to children. Now, I don't have any solution to that. But I do know that the psychological health of children is not getting better. It's getting worse. And so here I call us back into our readings to say the church ought to be attentive to this moment of need, to this kind of excessive and, and even obsessive way that we're trying to deal with the persistent nature of guilt in our midst. Two things the church has to offer, I think. The first is a sense of complicity. I'm to blame. You see, the constant or the, the secular culture doesn't have that inclination. And that's the thing that is we're seeing most clearly in Ezekiel. It's also in Jesus' passage. Jesus won't do anything of good signs in his hometown because they have no faith. As Jesus sends Ezekiel out to preach to Israel, he warns them. He says, Ezekiel, they have 
hard heads, hard foreheads, and stubborn hearts, and they won't hear your message. And so Ezekiel's going to um, go through these practices to try and arouse this sense of complicity and repentance. The people are crying out as victims, and they are. They've been conquered by a foreign nation, but they don't and they won't recognize their complicity. They won't look within. This is perhaps most evident in this passage in Luke's gospel. And when Jesus goes to confront those who thought they were righteous, he tells the story of a rich man, a Pharisee, and of a tax collector who come to the temple. And he says the tax collector comes and he stands before God and he says, I thank you, God, that I am not like adulterers and like um, swindlers and liars and sinners and like this tax collector. You can see there perhaps an echo of the, the worst of a victim culture. I thank you that I'm not like those oppressors. I thank you that I'm not like all these people that are wrong in our world. But what does the tax collector say? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That became a prayer, a waking prayer, to be prayed in the early church and monasteries by um, spiritual men and women. And to this day, it's still a prayer. I pray every day. Um, God, let your kingdom come. Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Holy Spirit, renew me in all the world. This simple threefold prayer to acknowledge each day, God, have mercy, I'm a sinner. We offer, in other words, I think, what the disciples are offering, a chance to be unloaded by the one who does have power to forgive sins. Proverbs 28 says that he who hides his sins will not prosper, but the one who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Contrition, to name our sins and to be released of them, the Lord who has power to forgive longs to forgive, to clean your slate clean and let you go free, not to wear in this burden um, onward and forever. There is true release that we have to offer in the good news of Christ. The second thing that we have to offer and related is redemption. To be redeemed, to have healing, to be brought back into fellowship again. Our culture can name, we can cancel, we can um, diminish um, guilt and wrongdoing, but we have very little in us to reconcile and to heal. That's the thrust, the purpose of Mark's gospel. He writes it not just about moral accounting. He wants you and I to know this loving, gracious, masterful figure that he walked around with for three years. And to know him, the entry point is repentance. We offer a person who knows us. Isn't that what the world most needs and most longs for? Not simply to be reckoned with their guilt, but to know someone who loves them deeply, who knows them perfectly. This is good news I think we offer in the gospel. Here is redemption. You and I can go together, kneel, confess, and find that we are one in our likeness as sinners, but find that in Christ we are united by his love and his redemption. This, I think, is some good news that we offer to a culture who does not know the remedy for sin. I'll end here, I'll remind us with these two parallels that we have both in, the, in Ezekiel's passage and in the Gospels. If we just keep reading a few verses in um, Ezekiel 2 and then 3, 
God is warning Ezekiel that the people aren't going to listen. They have their hard foreheads and their stubborn hearts. And he says to him, he says, if you preach to the righteous and the wicked and they repent or don't repent, I will not demand it of you. But if you do not go and preach and they do not repent, I will demand it of you. See, Ezekiel is encountering the burden. Like the disciples in Mark chapter 6, we've been bid by the Lord, go and proclaim that people should repent. The memorable end of Matthew's gospel, he said, Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is that exercise, that ritual of repentance, that ritual of coming to know the Lord by naming my sins and being welcomed to him. We've been commissioned, friends, into this world. And if another age used another apologetic to let make Christ known to the world, perhaps this is ours in this moment to attend to the deep, personal, psychological needs of guilt and shame and to show them the one who has power and authority to forgive our sins. Amen.